Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today we're going to be looking at individuals from ancient Greek and Roman history that could be considered prophets. Someone who's believed to be somehow connected to the gods, somebody who could predict the future, somebody who could work miracles. And a lot of the stories, as you might expect, are strange, and that's why they're being featured on our program. Now, to be fair, there are stories of the Old Testament prophets that are pretty strange, too, if you really delve into them closely. For example, Isaiah was ordered by God to preach in the nude. Jeremiah had to put a yoke that you would use for an ox for plowing on his back. And a prophet named Hosea was ordered by God to marry the most promiscuous woman around. And guess what? She ended up cheating on Hosea, too. Now, there are all kinds of symbolic understandings of this, but it just points out that obviously a prophet is somebody who's not like an everyday individual at all. In terms of certain people from ancient Greek times, the first ones that I'm looking at really do seem to be pretty much legendary. It's very hard to fix them in terms of birth and death dates and historical context. A man named Melampus claimed that he could speak with animals and that he was given that magic power after he saved the lives of a group of snakes, and these snakes turned out to be sacred. And the snakes started talking to him and said, hey, you're going to be able to understand animals from now on as a reward for saving our lives. He sacrificed an ox, and a group of vultures came to eat the carcass, and he talked to them and was able to get some information about something he wanted to know. He was imprisoned by his enemies, and they were probably going to have him put to death eventually. So he was in this cell, and he could hear termites that were in the wooden roof and walls of the cell. And the termites were talking about how they were eating through the wood and that the whole place was going to come crashing down soon. So when his captors came to bring him some food the next morning, he said, you have to get me out of this cell because it's just going to cave in. And they laughed, but he was very insistent. So they went ahead, moved him to a different cell. Guess what? Soon afterwards, the whole thing collapsed into a pile of rubble. Now his captors were frightened. They thought, oh, wow, he really does have power. So they released him. Melampus eventually became the ruler of the Greek city of Argos. And he achieved that status because a situation occurred where under the rule of a previous king, Proteus, the women of the city of Argos, including Proteus's own daughters, had done something to offend one of the gods or goddesses. One version of the story is it was the god Dionysus, another it was the goddess Hera. The women of the city went insane. Some of them killed their own children. They all ran out into the wilderness where they lived like wild animals. Melampus said, I can cure them if I get a certain percentage of the territory of the kingdom. When he was refused, he just kept upping that amount and the situation was getting worse and worse. So eventually Proteus agreed to it, allowed him to marry one of his daughters if he was able to do the cure. And he was successful. He cured them with a mixture of an herb called hellebore and also with frenzied dancing and the madness left them. We also have stories of a man named Aristeus. Aristeus of Proconesus. Now, this is a location right where you have the strait called the Bosporus that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Black Sea, near the modern Turkish city of Istanbul. Aristeus claimed that he had made a journey to the far north, that he had encountered strange races of people who lived in that region, including the people called the Hyperbrands, the people who lived to the furthest north. And it shows you that knowledge of geography among the ancient Greeks beyond the Mediterranean really wasn't particularly good at this time. Aristeus claimed to have visited a tribe called the Aramaspeans or Aramaspi, one-eyed people, kind of like human-sized versions of the Cyclops. 
and that they struggled with creatures called griffins, winged creatures that guarded gold that the Aramaspi wanted. Aristeus is said to have suddenly collapsed while he was in a fuller's shop, meaning someone who worked with cloth and textiles, in the town of Kizikus, not too far from Brokenesis. So he collapsed, he fell, and he, he appeared to be dead. It's not explained why Aristeus was in the fuller's shop. It would not have been a very pleasant place to die, because fullers used human urine to clean wool. The owner of the shop locked the door and then went to get help. So he got some people together to help him with the body. They come back, Aristeus' body is gone. And Aristeus reappears in living form seven years later on the nearby island of Prokinesis. And he recites an epic poem about his journeys that he undertook to the north. Unfortunately, we don't have this poem beyond a few stray quotations of a few lines. He reappears 240 years after that, this time in one of the Greek settlements in southern Italy called Metapontum. He said he had spent the last 240 years traveling along with the god Apollo, having taken the form of a raven. And he told the people of Metapontum that they should set up a statue of the god Apollo in their town, which they did traveling in a spiritual sense, is also attested for a man named Hermotimus from a little town on what's now the Turkish coast called Klazomenai. He is said to have done what paranormal investigators refer to today as astral projection. He would go to sleep and his soul would leave his body and it would travel great distances and then return the next morning. Hermotimus, though, ended up in a bad situation because of this. For some reason, his wife got angry at him she betrayed him to his enemies. They burned his body while the soul was on one of its trips, and so he was unable to return. Now, the next group of people have some link to some things that we can historically attest, but again, we've got a mixture of legendary material and historical material in talking about their lives. Now, Pythagoras is somebody who has had his name preserved on something that virtually everybody learns about in school. You learn about the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, an equation to describe the sides of a right triangle and how their lengths relate to each other in proportions. The reason why his name is on that theorem is because Pythagoras was known as a mathematician. He almost certainly was not the discoverer of that mathematical principle. We've got documents from Mesopotamia and Egypt long before his lifetime that seem to indicate knowledge of it. So when did Pythagoras live? Well, we think probably the 6th century BC or 500s BC. The problem is that most of the biographical information we have dates from the time of the early Roman Empire, many, many hundreds of years later. It's really hard to tell sometimes what is true material and what is fictional about his life. But the traditional story of his life is that he was from the island of Samos, which is a Greek island right off the Turkish coast today. One day he was walking past a blacksmith's workshop, and there were several blacksmiths in there, and they were all pounding their hammers on anvils, making metal objects, crafting them. And as he walked by, something happened. The hammers all came down at the exact same moment, kind of by chance it would seem, but they created a ringing tone in the air. And this gave Pythagoras an insight that sounds could be one of the ways of understanding the world around us. So Pythagoras got very interested in math, in numbers and how they relate to each other, how various equations connect to each other. 
and also in music. He made a close study of musical instruments and sounds and harmony, which he thought all these things were keys to understanding how the universe around us actually worked. He said to have gone on long journeys of his own, all the way over to India and also down to Egypt. He's credited with developing the idea that the world, the earth, is shaped like a sphere. It seems to be the first appearance of this idea, and that the planets, the heavenly bodies up in the sky, made something called the music of the spheres as they rotated. He developed the idea of transmigration of souls, that people would be reincarnated, and he claimed he remembered several of his own past lives, but not just as a person, but also as an animal and as a plant. There's even a story that was spread by one of his critics that somebody was beating a dog as he passed by, and he rushed over to stop the man from doing this because he said, hey, you're hurting my friend. Because of this concept of reincarnation, he is also someone who is connected to ideas of vegetarianism, although whether it was something he did or his later followers did is unclear. But it's the idea that you shouldn't eat animals, livestock, because they had human souls, And for some odd reason, beans could also contain human souls. So that would be the one thing that they would be advised not to eat from the plant world. These would probably be what you would think of as fava beans. And some people have thought that it was the shape that actually resembled a newborn that might have given him this idea. Now, he became a teacher of a group of people who were called Mathematikoi on his home island. And then he left around age 40, decided to relocate with his group. It's not exactly clear why. It may have been something political. Maybe the people of Samos just started to get very, very worried about Pythagoras in a circle because they were so secretive. They thought that many ideas of mathematics were too dangerous for the common public to know, so they kept them as secret concepts. One of them was that the square root of two, which you would think would be a nice round number, wasn't. It's an irrational number. Pythagoras really wrestled with this. He thought that this was a sign that maybe there was something fundamentally wrong with the universe around us. So it became known as the unspeakable. And there is a story of a later Pythagorean who gave the secret away and died in a shipwreck. So they're not going to stay in Samos any longer. Pythagoras decides to relocate with his group to another Greek colony in southern Italy called Croton, actually not too far away from Metapontum that I mentioned earlier. In Croton, Pythagoras and his followers seem to have actually become very influential. He said to have given lectures to hundreds of people at a time. Later Greek philosophers often tried to influence powerful men who were tyrants of cities and tried to get them to mend their ways. And Pythagoras is said to have tried to do this with a tyrant named Phalaris. Phalaris ruled over the city of Acragus in southern Sicily. Today, that's a town of Agrigento. And he was known for taking his enemies and roasting them alive in a bronze bowl. No indication that Pythagoras was actually able to get Phalaris to give up that particular pastime. But in general, the move to Croton turned out to be a very positive one, except political disputes caught up with them. There was a movement in Croton to set up a democratic government there. And Pythagoras and his people were opposed to that. They were much more in favor of the wealthy, educated men being in charge of a Greek city. But there was a guy named Chelon. And Chelon had tried to join Pythagoras' circle. And for some reason, they wouldn't admit him. So he got resentful. He was the leader of this group. So he became an opponent of Pythagoras. Eventually, there was violence. Pythagoras and his followers had to leave Croton. And at this point, there's many divergent traditions 
Some say that Pythagoras was caught in Croton with his followers, that the attackers set fire to the building that they were in, and that his only way to escape would be for his followers to actually help him by sacrificing their own lives. So this particular account states that a whole group of them just laid down in the fire so that he could step on top of their bodies and make his way out of the burning building to safety. There's also a story that Pythagoras wasn't even there in Crotum when the assault on his people occurred, and he met up with them later at Metapontum. And then there's various stories of how Pythagoras died. One of them is that he and his people were trapped inside a temple in Metapontum, and no food was brought to them, and that they starved to death inside the temple. There's also one that's really, really odd, that he was being chased by some enemies, and he would have gotten away from them, he would have escaped, but it would have meant running through a field planted with beans. And he couldn't bring himself to do it because, according to his own belief, he would be trampling the souls of thousands of people. So he hesitated long enough for his enemies to catch up with him and kill him. Now, Pythagoreans were in southern Italy and Sicily for long after this. It really stayed the center of the whole movement. We even know of some female Pythagoreans. Now, there's a number of people who are connected to Pythagoras in various stories. One of my favorites is Epimenides. Epimenides was from the town of Canossos on the island of Crete, and supposedly he had met Pythagoras on Crete when he was still pretty much a teenager, Epimenides was sent out to look for a stray sheep from his family's flocks. And he ended up in a cave and he fell asleep and he slept for 57 years straight. So it's sort of an ancient Greek version of the old Rip Van Winkle story. He woke up thinking he had just taken a nap for a short time, went back to town, couldn't find anybody that he knew. Everything looked different. Eventually found his younger brother, who was an incredibly elderly man at this point, and the pieces of the puzzle came together. He is said to have lived up to the age of 299, and that all he ate was this magic stuff, some kind of a plant or some kind of material that he kept in a cow's hoof that had been given to him by a group of goddesses. This substance is called alimos, which in Greek means not hungry. Epimenides traveled around as a kind of prophet, helping out in cases where there were curses that had descended on different cities. He's said to have done this in Athens. In Athens, there had been an attempt by an individual to take over the city and become a tyrant. Many of the followers of this guy who had tried to establish a tyranny had been killed, even though they were supposedly under some kind of a promise of safe conduct out of the city. Well, any kind of killing that breaks an oath or is done treacherously to the Greeks would bring down a curse. And the curse fell upon the family of the chief magistrate who had ordered this massacre. So this family called the Alcmeonidae were all exiled from Athens, and it went even further than the living. They were ordered to dig up the bones and bodies of their ancestors, exhume them, and carry them out of the city limits too. Problem was, there was still a curse lingering, even though they'd been kicked out. There was some kind of a plague. So Epimenides was brought to Athens, and he said, only human sacrifice can send the curse away. And supposedly, two men volunteered for this, and they were sacrificed. Other great stories connected to Epimenides are that some assassins were hired to kill him. He somehow caused them to go insane and attack and kill each other instead. The end of his life is attributed to execution at the hands of the Spartans. The Spartans went to war with his hometown of Canossos, and he predicted that the people of his hometown would defeat the Spartans. So in anger at something that they thought would mess with the morale of their soldiers in the war, they did away with Epimenides. But Epimenides was covered with tattoos. So they removed his entire skin 
and they kept his skin preserved in one of their temples. His body was taken to another town for burial. The best-known saying connected to Epimenides is a paradox. All Cretans, all people from Crete, are liars. Well, of course, he was from Crete. Somebody else connected to the Pythagorean circle, obviously someone seen as an admirer of his ideas, was a man named Empedocles. And we're moving now roughly into the 5th century BC, so at least some more historical basis for a few of the stories. He lived in the island of Sicily. He said to have healed a woman who had lain in a coma for 30 days. He claimed that he could control the weather, the wind and the rain. He said to have put an end to an outbreak of some kind of a plague or epidemic that had hit a town in southern Sicily named Selinus by diverting their water supply and cleaning it up. The story of the end of his life is that he jumped into the famous volcano of Etna in an attempt to become a god. He wanted to disappear in this way, and then people would say this later on. Only problem was people found one of his sandals right at the edge of the crater. Now, by historical times, as in the times when we have the real historical chronicles, there were a number of men who actually earned a living as what were called seers or mantes. We do tend to attribute all of this rationality to the ancient Greeks. You learn about their philosophers and their scientists and their great thinkers. But your average ancient Greek person was very tied into the concept of prophecy and connection to the gods. And almost every important person would employ one of these seers. For example, generals. When generals went out to war, wars like the Persian Wars, the Peloponnesian War, they always took a seer with them. Sometimes these guys were from families. It was a hereditary kind of job. You hear about a seer in stories of the Trojan War named Calchas. Calchas was the one who advised the Greek hero Agamemnon that the only way for the winds to shift and for the Greek fleet to be able to sail to Troy to carry out the Trojan War was for him to sacrifice his own daughter, Iphigenia. This was done, and lo and behold, the wind shifted and the fleet went to its destiny to attack and destroy Troy. But Agamemnon hated Calchas from that point forward, considered him to be evil. Calchas later got into some kind of a seer's duel, you might say, with another mantis named Mopsus, and Mopsus's prediction in a certain case turned out to be correct, and Calchas's was wrong, so Calchas killed himself. The methods that seers would use to try to predict the future or read the minds of the gods, what scholars generally call different forms of divination, are also kind of violent, but to animals. The idea of sacrificing an animal and cutting it open and looking at the internal organs, particularly the liver, for signs from the gods is a very ancient one. We have references from Mesopotamia. The Assyrians had scholars and priests who were devoted to this, and we have found on cuneiform very elaborate rules, sort of a 10-step process for reading the entrails. So they were the rocket scientists of their day. Greeks were a little more loose about it. They didn't have it all written down. It was more kind of impressionistic when they would look at the liver. But they would look for certain shapes, irregularities, bumps, lines, and spots on the organs and come up with an answer to a question based on that. So this was always done before a battle, or sometimes they would do something where they would sacrifice an animal and just do divination based upon its convulsions as it died. Sears worked pretty much for whoever would hire them. Onomacritus worked for one of the tyrants of Athens late in the 6th century named Pisistratus. But somebody found out that when he was compiling different prophecies and oracles attributed to somebody who had been around before him named Musaeus, that he was making them up, that he was forging oracles. 
So he was chased out of Athens, he fled over to Persia, and he was employed by the Persian king Xerxes. And he is said to have been one of the people who really convinced Xerxes to invade the Greek mainland in the Second Persian War. And we hear about a seer named Hegesistratus, who had gotten on the bad side of the Spartans. He was being kept in captivity in a cell with some kind of a stock or restraining device put around one of his legs. When his captors weren't looking, he sawed off his own foot to escape from this and hobbled many miles away to another town named Tegea. He later had a wooden prosthetic foot made to replace his original one. And he worked for one of the Persian commanders during the Second Persian War, Mardonius, because Mardonius was offering so much money for Greek seers. Eventually, the Spartans caught this guy again later on one of the Greek islands, Zakynthos, and finally killed him. That's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed it. You heard Magical Gravitation from RoyaltyFreeMusic.com and The Morning Song by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons. I hope to have you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.